We are T-minus 18 seconds from liftoff. We're T-minus 15 seconds. Would you and your men please follow me? Jerry, what the hell is this? This is an emergency. Please follow me, now! T-minus 10 seconds. Nine, eight, we have ignition. Six, five, we have outboard engines. Three, we have inboard engines. One, zero, we have a launch commit. We have a liftoff at 35 minutes after the hour. Every split second of this historic flight, every intimate detail, every heartbeat, was monitored by Mission Control in Houston. This is Capricorn One. We have landed. As millions all over the world watched and listened, the President of the United States spoke to the astronauts across the vastness of space. To the men of Capricorn One, I bring you greetings from your fellow Americans. There's only one small catch. It never happened. Welcome to Worth Watching Host Choice, where we hosts finally get to choose what we're watching. Today we're talking about the 1977 government conspiracy film Capricorn One. I'm your host, and I'm pretty sure the moon landing was fake, but Independence Day is a documentary. My co-host is Guy, who for some reason thinks I'm transmitting this podcast from within a 300-mile radius of him. Yeah, I think it's just my console. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. Yeah, if you reinstall Windows, I think it'll it'll clear that up. Oh, for you. there we go. <laughs> so, uh, we're watching this because way back in our notes about what we might watch, you had listed it, and and when you listed it, you said it was more of an investigation. So, what what's that all about? <laughs> I don't recall, <laughs> but uh, I think I remember that the movie came to mind originally after I hadn't even probably thought of it in years because the name brew baker came up somewhere <laughs> and i i remembered just out of the blue i think that that brew baker was the name of one of the characters in this movie and i haven't seen this movie since i saw it in the theater when it was released so that was uh, i was like seven years old eight years old something like that it was 77 um, so i was 10 or i was nine or 10 depending so i assume you would have been around there yeah it would probably have been seven the the other thing i think about at that age was that's when star wars came out right exactly uh, i don't know exactly oh, yeah. when related to this but kind of interesting to think of it in those terms oh sure so yeah i was just uh i was i was curious i i remembered uh the name brubaker so i thought <laughs> oh i haven't seen that for a long time i should put that on our list and I, I remembered, I, I think a lot of the movie went over my head being seven years old. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remembered that I had found it interesting overall. So, uh, I thought it might be worth another look to see. And it turns out there's a couple interesting things that, uh, will, will emerge as I do my yeah. commentary and whatnot. Yeah. Now, I'll admit, I was I was sort of worried about it because I saw it at that time also. I've never seen it since. Uh, and I think one of the interesting things, and I'll, I'll bring them up when they come along, is that even though I was, you know, eight or nine or ten or whatever, there were certain moments in this film I have remembered the entire time since. Huh. And, uh, but I was worried that it was going to be really cheesy or something, right? It's it's 70s action movie. Who knows what, what's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, interestingly, Peter Hyams, who directed it, and he also did Outland, which I 
I know uh, you like, and I, I've never, I've started it a couple times just for one reason or the other. I never got past like the beginning, so I need to watch it because I, I am a fan of the movie it's based on, which is High Noon. Mm, um, yeah. In fact, Hyams, yeah. I was reading about this, Hyams wanted to do a Western, and he couldn't sell the Western, so he turned it in, so he turned High Noon into a science fiction film and did that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that uh, well, that worked. It's a it's a well loved film, and I actually I have in my notes here that uh, I hadn't realized he was the same guy. Mm -hmm. But when they uh, when well, well, I'll explain it when we get right. to it. Uh, he also did two thousand ten, so that was a film uh, I haven't seen that since oh. it came out either. So. Yeah, I only saw that the one time in the theater, and uh, I enjoyed it. I don't remember anything about it except uh, you're supposed to stay away from Europa, I guess. <laughs> uh, and this was part of a batch of 70s conspiracy films, right? There was The Parallax View, which I never saw, but you've seen that one, right? Yes, yeah. In fact, that uh, that came to mind while watching this. It's that, that style of movie in many ways, yeah. And Three Days of the Condor, I like that one a lot. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't mind revisiting that if, at some point. I don't know well, if I've seen that one. Oh I've my heard god! It, then we have we're going to have to watch. Well, I think it's oh. probably we have some conspiracy topic or whatever. But regardless, we have to watch that. Yeah, you can't you can't <laughs> miss out on that one. Um, All right. Now, one of the things that surprised me coming back to this, and of course, uh, it, it wouldn't have had any impact at, at me at, on me at all when we originally saw it. This cast is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's. <laughs> It's like the whole seventies in a capsule. Yeah. Well, and you know, <laughs> Sam Waterston and Josh Brolin have active, significant careers to this day. I mean, actors don't usually last that long. There's another actor in there who had a couple problems along the way. <laughs> to, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> Hal Holbrook was great, but at the time, Hal Holbrook was the big star, right? I mean, these were just these young actors. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I don't know how much of a oh. name they had. Of course, he's in one of my very favorite movies, Creepshow. No, <laughs> I never saw that one. No, <laughs> ah, well, I have to do that sometime. Yeah, we just keep adding to the list. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, looking at it now, it's just like, it's sort of like uh, the movie, The Talented Mr. Ripley, If you, which I really like that movie. If you go see it, it's like, it's like six young actors who all became hugely famous after, you know, later. Is this? It was an incredible casting job, and this is kind of like that. Yeah, that's. A, I didn't see the talented Mr. Ripley, but uh, this sure has a heck of a cast, and I hadn't hadn't realized it. Well, that's another one we should watch. <laughs> We've just added about <laughs> six <laughs> films to our list. We better stop overhead. <laughs> we only got so much time on this planet. Oh yeah. Okay, well, with, with all that, uh, let's jump into the movie. Well, the credits start off, they're like a, uh, I don't know, I'd say it's uh, probably of some variant of Helvetica with real thin <laughs> lines, they're bright red against a black background. Right in the head, it, or in the credits, they mention uh, Huddleston, and then they mention Doyle, one right after the other, which uh, struck me funny because it, at the time, probably I still lived there when I saw this movie. Um, the neighbors across the street, they lived next door to each other, and their names were the Huddlestons and the Doyles. So hmm. this uh, <laughs> struck, struck me funny. Maybe that's why I remembered the movie. <laughs> But anyway, the, we get a date on the screen, January 4th. That's where it starts off. And I think it's 
It's going to go all the way through mid-September, I think, because the trip to Mars is a long journey, and that's what they're doing here. Uh, the first manned landing on Mars. Then we get some audio. It's Capricorn Control, uh, and they're they're located in Houston. Uh, most of the movie uh, takes place in Houston or very close to it. Capricorn Control is warming up the listeners, you know, the audience in the stands. They're all sitting in bleachers, looking at the rocket, standing probably a couple miles away. You've probably seen similar mm-hmm. shots from actual space shuttle launches and so forth. Yeah, and one of the things I like about the whole opening sequence, not just this, but just like the whole first 10 or 15 minutes um, where we really get to see everything that's going on, right, is they do a, a great job of they'll have like this background chatter, you know, or the person who's doing the announcing while they're showing you these really interesting images and pieces of the story. But it's not, it's kind of like not like they're leading you by the hand. Like all this stuff's going on and you're watching it and you totally understand what's going on. But it, but it is almost like you were there and just seeing, oh, this thing happening over here and this thing happening over here. And then the sound is sort of tying it all together. I, just, I think it's very smoothly done. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think overall, um, with, with there, there is one exception, and it's like the last scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most of the directorial choices uh, are, are pretty good in this um, mm-hmm. But uh, and then with the exception, we'll get to that uh, mm-hmm. towards the end. <laughs> but uh, the crew, the three astronauts, are planning to enter the spaceship, uh, the capsule. They call it the spacecraft, I guess, is what the actual technical people are calling it. And there's a guy named Horace there. He's the guy who's going to usher the astronauts into the capsule, and he gives them all a Bible to take into mm-hmm. space. And now I'm Brubaker. <laughs> I was drawing a blank on it after hearing it. You hear Josh that Brolin, about yeah. fifty times during the during the movie, which is probably why I remembered it <laughs> for decades. Brubaker doesn't seem terribly eager to take the Bible, but before he can make a smart remark about it, uh, one of the other guys says, "Thank you. We'll be proud to take it," or something like that. I think he, now I'm not going to guarantee this. I think you mixed up the characters there. I think it is Sam Watterson's character. Wilson, I believe is his last name, Willis. He's the one who's uncomfortable, and Brubaker is kind of the, because he's always the more mature guy in the movie, and he's the one who accepts it and thanks him for it. That's the way I remember it. We may have to to go back and (laughs) check it out. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. It's it's hard to tell because they got their space suits on. Yeah, that's a problem in the first. are a little dim. In the first few minutes of the film, it is a little hard to tell who's talking when they're in the suits. One thing that got me in this, both times that I watched it for this, uh, especially when you're seeing him from the back, Horace, the guy you were talking about who had the Bible, we hear him inviting in the astronauts and talking to them before we see him. It sounds just like Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> and really? you know, yeah, if they did the movie that. today, it probably would be him, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the a congressman, a senator, arrives with his wife and... Uh, this is David Huddleston, and this man is the Big Lebowski <laughs> himself from the movie The Big Lebowski. He's and it's funny; he's I totally recognized him, man. but I I did not remember that that's where he was from, and I didn't look it up, so it's kind of funny. And also, I mean, this movie is um, you know, forty years ago or whatever, and he basically looks the same as a Big Lebowski as he did <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, he looks he looks a little younger, but uh, but still uh, very recognizable. And and he's also 
Um, I, I had I had to look look him up because I couldn't place him at first, and Big Lebowski was the first thing that leapt to mind. But he was also one of the Johnsons, one of the residents of Rockridge, and uh, Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Um, so he's pretty recognizable from that too. So this this senator, he's amused that the vice president, who he terms an asshole. Uh, is coming, but not the president, um, and the vice president is late to boot. So the vice president just isn't showering himself in glory here. One of the things I like in the movie, and it's mostly represented by Huddleston here, is it it has absolutely no gauzy eyes for politics, right? I mean, these people all hate <laughs> each other. And, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the politicians in this do not uh, come out smelling like roses. So this congressman, Senator Lebowski, makes a nuisance of himself. Uh, he, he bugs one of the ushers, and he gets an extra pair of free binoculars. He says he needs them for his wife. Uh, and these are commemorative binoculars, right? And they're only supposed to get one for the couple, and he won't let it. Yeah, and he just totally is leaning on the guy with his, you know, his stature and everything. And it's just his kid. I mean, he's like 15 practically or something, right? So, oh, yeah. yeah. Yep, young guy, but uh, but the young guy burns fast, as we'll see. <laughs> so we get shots of mission control, and it's a big room. It's a little smaller than some mission controls I've seen, uh, but uh, and it's surprisingly dim. You know, uh, most of the mission controls I can remember. I mean, not a, I'm talking real life, not science fiction movies, but in in real life, a mission control room. The ones I've seen tend to be brightly lit. I mean, mm -hmm. there's no mm -hmm. shadows at all. This this one is very dim and shadowy. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting point, and I, I didn't think about it, but I'm I'm confident that that is a choice, right? And and I think part oh, yeah. of it is because this whole thing is a lie. So they're mm -hmm. you know they live in darkness. You know, <laughs> that's what I would oh, say. Oh yeah. <laughs> also, so everybody finally, smokes. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, the vice president arrives, and the usher gives him and his wife each a pair of binoculars, and the senator uh, points out that he learns quick. So at the space capsule, you know, it's, it's perched on the very top of the rocket. Horace is up there, uh, and the, I believe the, the crane, this big edifice they're in that surrounds the rocket and the capsule i believe that's called the gantry mm -hmm. um at least that's what i'm that's the term i'm gonna go with so if i'm wrong then uh, mm -hmm. we'll substitute the right word or something <laughs> uh he, horace seals the astronauts into the capsule we see hal holbrook uh, who is dr kellaway he's sitting in the main control room looking pensive and thoughtful Soon the capsule door opens back up. It's supposed to be permanently sealed. They're, you know, they're ready to take off. Uh, but there's a guy in a suit there, and he says, this is an emergency. Come with me now. Uh, and they give him a little bit of flack about it, but, you know, he's one of the bosses, so they have to go with him. <laughs> uh, we see them get out of the base of the gantry, and they get into a NASA van that takes them to a helicopter. And at one minute and counting, one minute before liftoff, uh, the astronauts transfer from the copter to a jet. And right, and this whole time we're hearing the ongoing narration, right? So everything's continuing as if nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the rocket 
is going to take off, and it does take off, uh, but of course it takes off without the three men who are supposed to be in the driver's seat. Mm. So the audience in the stands begins leaving. The senator talks with the vice president about uh, his support for the president. The president would like more support, but the senator wants more support for NASA, which, which leads us to think later on that this probably is the bad guy who's causing all these bad things to happen. I mean, you just have to go with it for the story. It's almost like a science fiction thing, right? Like the president doesn't show up for a Mars launch and he's totally not supportive. And it kind of indicates a real, um, you know, a kind of different environment because it's very hard to imagine a president not being all over a Mars launch in reality, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, at least the very first Mars launch would be a big historic thing. So you'd, you'd think they'd uh, he'd be on hand for that. You remember, um, there's this great uh, shot of the astronauts after they came back from the moon and they're still like quarantined inside their capsule or whatever. And Nixon is standing outside of it making a speech. <laughs> it's just so bizarre because they're looking at him through the glass of the capsule while he makes this speech. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I ever saw that, but uh, yeah, I can believe that would, would happen. <laughs> The jet lands at an old military base. I mean, uh, the buildings have the paint is all peeling off them. You know, they're, they're sandblasted from being out in the desert. Uh, the astronauts are led to a small meeting room, and this this reminded me of uh, a, a great classic movie, uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, um, when a bunch of guys go into a little tiny meeting room. This is bigger than that room, but it's not bigger by much. Uh, Hal Holbrook enters, and you'd think the decent thing to do would be to just explain what the hell's going on, but instead he launches into a long-winded speech about the 16 years that he and Brubaker have known each other. So, now, my, you may have had a different impression about the acting in this scene because I'm not the greatest judge <laughs> of acting ability. I, I've always thought Hal Holbrook was a talented actor, and I think he's a, a talented actor here, but I think he's playing a guy who's slightly off, like a guy who's trying a little too hard to seem sincere. That's the the impression I got from this scene. Now, I could be... Yeah, it is an interesting one because it's a long monologue, and it's an important monologue because he's, you know, he's explaining everything that's happening. I mean, the way I would probably think about it and we i mean i think one of the he's probably one of the most well realized characters in this and i think a, a valid criticism of the movie would be a lot of the characters aren't very fleshed out um mm. he's one of the most fleshed out in part because we get to see him throughout the movie and we kind of realize more and more what kind of guy he is as it goes along right I mean, yeah he has this very uh friendly folksy uh, presentation of himself normally uh, and that's what he has in this, but right. there's a layer of insincerity about it. And the it, other I thing, think. though, is in the beginning here and in, in what, you know, we'll be talking about over the next few minutes, it seems like, oh, you know, there's these forces and I, there's nothing I can do about it. And here we are. And as the movie proceeds, we kind of realize, no, actually, it's pretty much him. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah he, I, think, I think he does have people pulling his strings. I think Senator Lebowski is probably yeah, the Yeah, but he, but he doesn't ready. appear to be objecting to anything. <laughs> yeah, and he's running all the actual operations to try and keep, uh, you know, not, not just the mission control operations, but 
other things that we'll right. get into. <laughs> also, one thing I liked about this scene from the very beginning, and, and partially, I think a lot of what we'll see and I'll talk about is that they had a pretty low budget, especially when you think about the actors who are in this. And we didn't, you know, Elliot Goulds is in this. We didn't even talk about him. Mm-hmm. And he was, of course, a famous actor by now, I think. Um, oh, yeah. And they had a low budget, and I think they have to do a lot of things creatively within that, uh, while not seeming like they have a low budget. But one of the things may be this room, which I love because it's not, you know, so many of these films and it's like, oh, the government, this and that. No, we've got this, you know, pristine white room here that we're going to put you in or whatever. No, this is this is a 70s room with folding chairs and crappy <laughs> tables and with some, you know, um, ashtrays on them. I mean, there's nothing sexy about any of this, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a very small conference room with little plastic tables and yeah, it's and they even uh, reuse it, it, it later it, in the movie which again i think was a budget thing it's like well we got this so let's just use it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it does come back so holbrook is giving his speech really laying it on about how much history he and brubaker have together and how much they all love the space program and then he, he starts airing his grievances. You know, he points out the vice president was at the launch, not the president. He's he's pointing out there's not a lot of support for the space program right now. He tells about two months ago when he met with the president, and the president told him we can't afford another screw-up. Mm-hmm. And then he reveals there was another screw-up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they realized that the life support system, which was made by a company called Con Amalgamate, would have killed the crew within three weeks of the launch. Um, and apparently it was too late to revise it to actually work. And here's the point where I remembered the company in mm-hmm. Outland was called Con Amalgamate or Con Amalgamated, something like that. So I looked it up, and it turns out, that, as we mentioned earlier, uh, it, this director also directed Outland. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just a similar name. It was the exact same name. <laughs> Well, apparently he also puts his wife's name, which is a little odd, it's like Spico or something, one of, or maybe it's her last name, in all of his films. So, you'll, you know, the, um, huh. it's in, I, I don't even know where it was, but I read it's in here and it's also in Outland. And, yeah. Oh, I'll be darned. Oh, that's neat. <laughs> so I was very pleased to see that because um, I, I, I enjoy Outland. It's a, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a fun movie. It's got a few odd things about it but it's uh it's overall just a really neat movie so he's going on and on about uh you know building them up the uh, they understand at this point that there's uh something bad going on but he still mm-hmm. hasn't really he's been circling around the point so Kellaway says come with me and uh he leads the astronauts to this small tv broadcast booth it's just big enough for four men to sit at the consoles in there Um, They walk through the booth, exit out another door, and they're on a big sound stage. (laughs) They've recreated a Martian landscape with Mm. red dirt and rocks and everything, and a big old lander, very similar to what we've seen from the moon landings. Well, in Um, fact, one of the ways they saved money was Hyams, from some of his previous work, had connections. And he got NASA to loan them a prototype lander so they didn't have to recreate it. So oh. that is an actual, basically an actual lander they had. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, good to have connections, I guess. Yeah, and I don't mm. know why they agreed because the movie makes the, 
government and NASA look terrible, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's just a few bad apples. (laughs) So the, the plan is that the astronauts will mostly just lie low. The only time when they'll actually have to do some work will be for the television transmissions. And the plan is that when the lander returns from Mars, they'll be taken to a remote island uh, and the capsule will be brought down a couple hundred miles off course, which will put it right near that island. And the astronauts will be loaded into the capsule before the recovery ship arrives because it'll take extra time to get there because the capsule's off course. Mm-hmm. So the astronauts argue uh, they don't like the dishonesty, understandably enough. And they, you know, they have some professional pride too. They don't want to claim credit for something they didn't actually do. Killaway says if they don't participate, then the program is going to end. Brubaker says if the only way to keep something alive is to become everything I hate, I don't know if it's worth keeping it alive. So Killaway is starting to worry that he's he's not going to get their cooperation. So finally, he gives them the big reveal. Right now, their families are all together on a vehicle. Um, and I assume it's a bus, not a plane, because I think the families all live in Houston. I thought he said they were um, flying. But... It could be, but I thought the families lived in Houston. I thought he just said a vehicle, but I don't know for sure. But whatever the case, whatever the vehicle is, there's a device on it, and if the astronauts refuse to play along, it's going to blow up. Yeah, and this is where he's like, oh, it's forces out of my control. What can I do? And later on, I'd be like, no, he probably totally planned this. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is where he says there are very powerful piece of people yeah. behind this. And we have seen Senator Lebowski, so uh, you know, I, I think he's somehow involved. <laughs> yeah, he's unindicted. I, I you know, <laughs> I, I believe in our, our justice systems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more fool you. <laughs> So outside Brubaker's home, Elliot Gould is hitting on Karen Black, their fellow journalists. Uh, they're they're waiting for Brubaker's wife to come out and uh, address the gathered press. So Gould and Karen Black they seem to get along fine. She's he's you know he's he's hitting on her. She's not falling for the lines, but she's not terribly annoyed by it. She's you know she's just almost seems to be hinting that maybe if he gets his strategy right, he might have a chance. Yeah, he keeps saying, you know, she she's like, oh, you want to jump me? And, you know, when he sort of stops, she's like, oh, you, you should keep going. You just have to find the right way. But what they're very clearly doing here um, in this relationship and later in the relationship with Gould and his editor is it's the classic journalism films, right, where they talk really fast and they have all these one-liners with each other and all that. Mm-hmm. What I can't figure out with Elliot Gould as we go along, is that I'm not quite sure what he was doing here because he plays his character. I mean, not so much when he's talking to Karen Black, but in a lot of cases, he plays his character pretty flat. He just says the lines and doesn't put a lot into them. And, you know, I'm, mm. uh, I assume that was a choice. I'm not quite sure what was going on there. He's just, you know, he's it's not like any actor could have kind of done his performance. You know, uh, he wasn't really being Elliot Gould or something. <laughs> it felt like to me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. There aren't a lot of standout uh, lines that he gets, but uh, uh, he does get some fun action. So uh, yeah, well, he's a he's a key part role. of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so Brubaker's wife finally comes out and she answers a few, you know, 
standard boring questions. And she goes back inside, and uh, I had a note here that it looks like six more weeks of winter. <laughs> she just came out, you know, looked around, talked mm. to everybody, went back inside. One of the things I like with her mm. casting and also Karen Black and pretty much everyone in the movie, this was truer back then and truer of, like, British films, right? These are all adults, you know, and, and so often in more modern films, they'll be, like, 20 or something, right? And I like mm, seeing yeah. films that have actual adults in them who would actually have life experience, you know? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. There's uh, most most of the most of the people in this are fairly uh, seasoned, I, I guess you could say. In the mission control room, there's a guy named Elliot. Now this is not Elliot Gould. <laughs> this is the character's name. Yeah, Elliot Gould's <laughs> character is something else. This Elliot asks a Doctor Bergen uh, about a problem he's having with his readouts. Uh, this this scientist Elliot ran a check. On his own initiative, which uh, apparently doesn't happen a lot because it seems to <laughs> catch Dr. Bergen. Uh, it, it, he doesn't look terribly surprised, but um, he doesn't react quite the way that Elliot was expecting. What Elliot found is that the TV signals, whenever they get TV signals, they come in ahead of the telemetry data, uh, and, and they shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, the doctor... Tells him, well, console 36 has always had problems. We'll have it looked at. Mm -hmm. And then we get a brief shot of Elliot back at home at the end of the day, and he's looking over a bunch of papers and notes. And then May 14th comes. Now, it was January when the ship took off. May 14th comes. Uh, I think that's going to be Mother's Day this year, mm -hmm. actually. The ship is now the capsule. The lander is five minutes from landing on Mars. And I'll say one criticism I would have of the movie is they don't really communicate this passage of time. I mean, if you're not paying close attention to the dates, and I wasn't really looking at the dates at all, it it can be a little confusing because it's not like you get some montage of the astronauts having to sit around for months or anything. You just have to intuit right. all that, part of which I think is also a budget thing. They were, clearly were just cutting down on sets. So the only time we see oh, the astronauts, yeah. they're just hanging out on the Mars set. They're never anywhere else. You know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that would have been uh, some sort of little montage to show the time passing. It might have been appropriate, but uh, yeah, it would be easy to miss these dates that pop up for what five seconds or so. Yeah. So we hear um, you know one of the uh, space announcers talking about how it takes twenty five or twenty one minutes for the signal to reach Earth from Mars. Um, Senator Lebowski is watching in his office with two guests, and he predicts that he'll get a call from that asshole Price, who is the vice president, five minutes after the landing. The capsule lands. Brubaker says we have landed, and there's cheering in the control room, and there's cheering around America. We get a few shots of bars and people looking in TV store windows, mm -hmm. and, you know, the usual. Which this calls back to something I don't think we actually mentioned about uh, how Holbrook's speech, right, where he he talked about with the first moon one and how people left work and, you know, uh, shut down everything so they could watch it. And then later on, you know, when there was um, one of the Apollo ones, uh, I think maybe even the moon landing, but it was whatever, some later Apollo one, you know, people called up and complained that their sitcom had been 
delayed because of the landing, you know, that sort of thing. So Yeah, they wanted their I Love Lucy reruns, if I remember right. <laughs> right. So here we're kind of seeing what Hal Holbrooks wants, you know, is people paying attention again. Although, once you've done yeah. it once, they're going to stop paying attention. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. It'll become old hat. The space shuttle launches mm-hmm. became mm-hmm. that way to, to some extent, you know, after. Oh, yeah. After they blew up, I think that made the subsequent ones a little more popular, probably. But you remember, uh, did you go through this with the first uh, shuttle launch? Like, we all, you know, we got up in the middle of the night or whenever it was, or very early in the morning, um, so we could watch it. And and then later, it was like, oh, there's a shuttle up? Okay, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I remember in the early days of it, I I would watch the launches and all that. And then you wouldn't even know that one was going on unless somebody Mm. happened to mention it to you. So the senator gets his call from the vice president. It goes exactly as he predicted. <laughs> um, and then we see Elliot from NASA, not Elliot Gould. He's talking to Dr. Callaway about Console 36, uh, the one that he had talked to Bergen about some time ago. Uh, and he's explaining that he had run his own program. And Callaway says with a poker face, you ran your own program. And uh, he's, of course, not happy about mm-hmm. that because... Uh, this guy could sour the whole deal if he finds out too much. So he just says, I thank you for bringing the matter to my attention. And that's, the guy's dismissed. The crew, uh, this is the space announcer talking. He sa- he's saying that the crew has a pre-recorded message from the president because of the 21-minute delay, they just took it along with them before they, when they took <laughs> off. And Brooke Baker descends the ladder now. He's about to step on Mars. And when he jumps off the bottom step, uh, we see the guy in the small television broadcast room, the uh, the one right next to the big st- sound stage. He has him switch to slow motion so that yeah. he, he looks like you know, he's in lower gravity as he's jumping off the ladder. And what bugged me about this is this part didn't need to be live. They could have filmed this weeks ahead and not risked any kind of a screw up or not have to go to slow motion in real time, which anybody <laughs> playing the film back could probably detect without too much. Well, trouble. yeah, no, I hadn't even thought about the fact they could, of course, have recorded it earlier, but the whole going, so for visually and in terms of telling the audience what's happening, right? Like, oh, when they jump off, we're going to go into slow-mo and you see it. And and that's effective and it tells you what's happening, but it makes no sense. You can't go in and out of slow-mo while <laughs> showing live people. And also that means when they're walking normally, they're going to look like they're on Earth unless you had the whole thing in slow-mo. You know, like if you if you start thinking about it, it makes no sense at all. But in terms of just communicating to the viewer that, oh, we're faking this and doing these tricks to make it look like it. I, you know, I think it works and you, you just have to let it go, yeah. Yeah, although I'm not sure. I think they might have been able to switch to slow-mo in, in real time. Uh, I'm not certain, but I, I think they might have been able to. Well, it's not that you couldn't. No, it's just, I, I don't know. I think you would get into weird scenarios Um uh, well, anyway, yeah, it's but, running a huge risk compared to doing it ahead yeah. of time, getting it right, and then just broadcasting it. Because yeah. they don't have to interact with them. They can't interact with anyone here because they're right. 21 minutes away. But, of course, part, but, of the, uh, part of the tension of the film, which we'll see more later, is you want it to be live because so the bad guys don't know if, if the astronauts are going to say something, right, and if they're going to go right. along with it, right? So if it's all pre-recorded, 
it would remove a lot of the tension from the film. Oh, yeah. Although they, they do have a, a live part later that they really couldn't fudge. I yeah, mean, that's they true. Had to, uh, but we'll get to that pretty soon, I think. So Brubaker stands on the surface of Mars, or at least a an uncanny replica. <laughs> and uh, he says, we do not claim this planet in the name of America. We claim it in the name of all the people of the planet Earth. So I was indignant about that because the rest <laughs> of Earth didn't pay the taxes for it. Like, uh, it should have been for America. <laughs> so then they play the tape from the president, and I didn't write down any quotes from it because it's just a bunch of typical sanctimonious BS, you know. And that's you know, probably... I, no, go ahead. I was gonna, you know, go my ahead. slogan would be, make Mars great again, of course. But... <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's got a ring to it. <laughs> but uh, it's entirely possible that the president really is sincere in what he's saying. For all we know, he may be really mm. gratified and relieved. Of the no, we know he's not well. because we already know that he wants to yeah. shut this whole thing down, et cetera. So uh, this is where the president's just, you know, doing the politician thing. I mean, of course, he'd have to no matter what he felt like. Well, he did. He did tell Callaway that we can't have any screw ups on this one. Mm -hmm. So maybe as long as there's no screw ups, he's mm -hmm. happy about it. I don't know. So we see a bar, uh, and the two Elliots, Elliot Gould and Elliot from NASA, are near a pool table, and Gould challenges the other Elliot to play a game. But the other Elliot's, uh, he's a little bit bitter about the way work has gone recently, and he just wants a drink. So he goes to get one. And then while they're setting up the pool table, Elliot complains about the mystery that he's run into at work with the transmissions and the mm. strange times discrepancies. He talks about how the two doctors both seemed pissed at him that he asked about the signals. Uh, and Gould is interested, but at this moment, for some reason, he gets a phone call at the bar. And the for some reason, I think, is probably... Uh, they're distracting him. The yeah, yeah, he's getting distracted him. here. But I would, did want to mention one thing about their conversation. It's one of the last things that the other Elliot says is that, this, uh, you know, it couldn't have been coming from within 300 miles. And yeah, this is going to be a whole key thing in the film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, we don't really know what he's saying, or at least there's no way that Elliot Gould would, would know what he means, right? But we as the viewer kind of know what, that what he must be saying is that the television transmission is coming from within 300 miles of, you know, where they're at, which doesn't make any sense, right? But but he says right. it in a kind of cryptic way that Elliot Gould wouldn't really know what he was talking about. Yeah, but it is coherent enough that it gets him interested, and he does want to hear about it, but that's when he gets the phone call at the bar. Uh, and it's not a f fast phone call because mm -hmm. it seems like the caller may be First, it may be a bad line, then it may be that he's incoherent or just a crank, but Gould finally refers him to the newspaper's assignment desk. Uh, and when he returns to the pool table, the other Elliot is gone, and there's a little bit of suspenseful music. <laughs> so back on the sound stage, the astronauts are hanging out, they're talking, they're uh, waiting for the next live broadcast in a few months, I guess. I <laughs> now Brubaker's saying he's not going to do it. 
And the other two guys are upset with that because he's the one who finally talked them into it, and now he's backing out, probably to protect his family. Uh, but there's a guy in the broadcast booth. He's sitting in there. He's smoking a pipe, and he can hear everything they're saying on the yeah. stage. And this was, I mean, obviously it's good for the plot, but Brubaker is such a smart guy, as we're going to see, that this is a real unusual lapse on him of not realizing they'd be, you know, overheard on the sound system. Yeah, yeah. I, that, that seems like the sort of thing I'd be paranoid about in mm-hmm. his position, but it could be wrong. So the pipe-smoking man calls Dr. Calloway and says, we may have a problem with Brubaker tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And Brubaker, when the other knots or other astronauts are giving him uh, uh, some pushback, he says, well, we'll all decide together. And, you know, I won't go off and act on my own. Mm-hmm. One one thing this you know I really started noticing around here and also is true, which is O.J. Simpson's character is entirely useless in this movie. He says about three lines. <laughs> you could take him out; it would change absolutely nothing about the film. And I was thinking, wow, it feels like they must have had more, and they must have taken lines away from him. There must have been problems. So I, you know, I read the Wikipedia entry and other stuff, and there was nothing about that at all. In fact, him and Peter Hyams remained friends until that little unfortunate accident. Um, but so I don't know what the deal was, but why would you have this character that everybody knows and loves at this point in time? Right. I mean, this is like the height of OJ Simpson's popularity. Right. And, and he has no lines and no impact on the, on the movie at all. I mean, Sam Waterston doesn't really have an impact, but he has a personality, right? He's always the Hmm. joker and he's always, you know, making some comment or whatever. So he's sort of keeping things interesting. But hmm. O.J. Simpson's just, he's basically not there. <laughs> anyway, and yeah. I really started to notice it in this scene because he doesn't say, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, he's, he really is kind of a, a third wheel, I guess. But uh, they might have just hired him for the star power, you know. I'm yeah. sure in 1977 that was probably right around the zenith of his uh, sports career, I would guess. I don't remember. I know he was in the Naked Gun movies, and I I think he had a few lines there, but I don't think they really gave him a lot there either. He was also, I think, before this even, this. in one of the in one or two of those disaster films, you know, the earthquake or burning oh, down like the skyscraper or whatever. Or, yeah, yeah. I think he was in one or two of those. And, or, yeah. yeah, so he'd been in several films, but, um, hmm. you know, and I was also looking to see, I thought maybe it's his first film, maybe he really didn't know what he was doing, but it wasn't. So, just really curious to me. I, I don't get it. And I would think if you're going to put a big star in here, you'd give him a few lines and all that. But, you know, and it's actually, this is the rare movie where I'd say I, I ultimately feel like if they'd made it 20 or 30 minutes longer, they could have fleshed out a number of things like his character and a few plot points we'll get to and everything. So, mm-hmm. um, but again, low budget, you know, they're clearly just trying to do everything they can to to cut down on everything. So I think this is the sort of thing that happens. Yeah, maybe maybe you charged by the word. <laughs> so in the newsroom of the newspaper where Elliot Gould works, uh, he tries to make a call to the other Elliot, and he's been trying for an hour, and he's getting busy signals. So he asks the operator to check if the phone is out of order, and the operator technically isn't supposed to do that, but she does it. She confirms that it is out of order. So now back at Mission Control, the lander is on its way back to Earth, and it's gotten close enough to Earth that it's in the range that where they can have a normal conversation without long delays. 
So the astronauts talked to their wives. And, uh, you know, the other two guys, they, they talk to their wives, don't have any big uh, revelations or anything. Then Brubaker's wife gets on, and it's Brubaker who was, who was threatening that he mm -hmm. was going to stop playing along. Uh, so she reads a composition by their son about what a great dad he has. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's you know, the heartfelt composition. And Brubaker, you see some tears streaming down his cheeks. And uh, uh, now the conspirators, you know, Kellaway and his crowd, they're ready to interrupt the transmission if they have to. They've got a hand right over a mm -hmm. big, big red button that'll interrupt the transmission. But Brubaker doesn't end up... Uh, doing anything too obvious. Uh, he just says, tell his son that they'll go to Yosemite again like they did last year. And the wife here, she pauses a minute. This is Brenda Vaccaro, by the way, another uh, well-known 70s actress. Yeah, I don't think uh, we're familiar with her, although I, I thought she did a really good job and she had a real presence uh, in this. Uh, so, I, you know, is one of those roles mm -hmm. where they could have, again, just put anybody into it, but but by having someone who who was really good, it, it adds to the movie. Yeah, yeah, it uh, was just another good, good, solid component, I guess. I mean, one of the things I'd say for the movie is that, and again, especially for having a relatively low budget, they don't have any bad casting. I mean, it's not really anybody who, you know, stands out as, as not fitting or anything like that. Yeah, I can't think off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone that I just thought, ah, that kind of stinks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even the other Elliot guy, I mean, he's kind of a generic character, but there's nothing wrong with his acting or anything, right? I mean, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Brubaker says, tell his son they'll go to Yosemite again, mm -hmm. like they did last year. And his wife pauses a moment, and then she says she'll tell him. And uh, this this pause ends up being fairly important. To that yeah, area. as we didn't mention, but Elliot Gould is, is in the area where the wives are and, and, you know, and everything. And he's seeing her during this. So he seems to kind of notice her pause, which becomes important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're, you know, the, the, the live talk between the astronauts and their wives, uh, that's being broadcast to the whole nation, I think. But, but Elliot Gould does live in or around Houston. So he, he's very conveniently situated to crack the case. <laughs> So we see Gould arriving at an apartment complex, and this is this is Elliot from NASA's apartment. And Gould has been here before. He mentions when he talks to the occupant of Elliot's apartment, who is now a woman, uh, and according to her, has been for some time. Uh, he pushes past her into the apartment finally, uh, and he starts looking around, and she just sort of stands there. <laughs> Wondering if she should call the police or what. He looks at the mail on the table, and it's all addressed to her. There's nothing here to suggest that she hasn't lived here for months. Uh, you know, the apartment's completely... It's not decorated like a NASA scientist bachelor would probably <laughs> have it decorated. Yeah, and this is one of those moments I always remembered because it was really creepy to me. The part where he starts... There's a bunch of magazines on a table, and he goes through them. And he really, and like you say, I mean, I think he later says he can, she's been here a year mm -hmm. and you know, his friend just disappeared. So that was very creepy. Now, logically there's a lot of problems with this. Like, did the guy have no family, did, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But just as a communication mm -hmm. of how powerful these people are, that they can totally make someone disappear and never have existed 
uh, is pretty, oh, yeah. you know, pretty creepy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's uh, not unlike the uh, the prisoner in that yeah, regard. Yeah, yeah. So he he can't prove that she hasn't been there for a long time, so he ends up leaving. And uh, well, as he's driving, his brakes go out, which is bad enough. And then it turns out his emergency brakes also gone out, which is worse. And finally, the accelerator <laughs> is still accelerating, and that's uh, combined with the other things. That's really bad. Uh, so this ends up being a fun action scene. Uh, there's a lot of sharp turns and you know going over bumps at high speed and finally he comes to an open drawbridge and he manages to ditch the car in the ocean um <laughs> one the, a nice car too uh, hmm? i think what to me what was fascinating about this whole sequence is again i think it's a budget thing that that resulted in something better in fact um roger ebert kind of didn't like the film but he called out this sequence as being great and hmm. the reason I, it's different because Unlike, say, The French Connection or, you know, these other films that have the famous car chases, you don't really see the car because it's it's sort of first-person view, right? So it's literally a camera, like, on the hood of the car. So you're just seeing what the car would be seeing as you're going through, which means you don't have to film the car. And you don't have to, you know. And so that way cuts down the complexity and the cost of this while also making it a unique car chase because, you know, you've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. Now, and I have a theory when we get to, you know, a chase later in the film that they put all their money into that one <laughs> because there's a pretty spectacular <laughs> chase at the end of the film. Uh, but anyway, that's just my theory uh, is that this was them trying to find a cheap way to do a car chase and that resulted in something that's really compelling and different than anything we've seen before or since really. I've never seen kind of a first person, you know, car chase like this where you're seeing it from the point of view of the car. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I played video games where that was the case, but uh, you know, in movies, I'm, I can't think of one off the top of my head. It's a fun scene, anyhow. Uh, and he ends up surviving. Uh, we see him come to the surface, uh, but his Mustang stays down underwater. And it was a clever ending to it because as it's going and his car is speeding up and he's going all over the place, there's like, there's no possible way he can survive this, right? So, you know, I don't know if he would have actually survived that dunk into the water, but it was a, you know, it was a clever way to end it, to to, to give him an out, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it, it, it seems likely. I mean, back then they probably didn't even have airbags. That would have been <laughs> That's true. He did not have an water. airbag. I guarantee that. I mean, these... These seventies cars. His were driver's window. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, it, his his driver's window was open um, as he went into the water, so he could have just you know, gone mm -hmm. right out of that. But anyway, he survived <laughs> for the movies. This does the, remind me one of the dumb things. My my dad was a cab driver, but uh, as a driver, he he wasn't very smart about it. So he would never <laughs> wear a seatbelt because he would <laughs> say. If I get into an accident, I want to be thrown out the window. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard people say that before, and that's, I don't know how they think physics works exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's interesting. I've, I've, I've heard various people say that. So, you, I mean, yeah, you know, you could get lucky, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, September 19th has come up, another one of those brief date mm -hmm. titles that comes up on the screen. Uh, the lander is returning to Earth. The astronauts are led through the sound stage, which won't be needed anymore. Actually, 
It hasn't been needed for months. I don't know why they didn't dismantle that. <laughs> because they wanted to reuse of... the stage for this scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, the, uh, what would that be? The, the doily in explanation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, because they, uh, normally if you're an evil conspirator, you want to destroy the evidence as, as soon as you possibly can. But, uh, oh, well, the sound stage is still intact for now. And their jet takes off. The mission control, uh, a guy in mission control tells Kellaway that uh, the capsule is going to come down up to 200 miles off target. And it could take up to 90 minutes for the rescue ship to reach them, or the recovery ship it's called, to reach them. And of course, both of these are things that Kellaway mentioned explicitly earlier when he was talking about the plan. So, so everything's going according to schedule. Until an alarm starts. And then we see a TV monitor or an old green screen monitor uh, that says uh, heat shield separation on it, which doesn't sound very encouraging. And here's another thing that I have a question hmm. about. Uh, after a few seconds of that, we see Brubaker's screen, which has been showing his pulse rate up to now. Now it flatlines. And then we see the other two screens. And they're flatlined, too. But if the astronauts are down here on Earth, well, then what's generating the pulse rates? Yeah. And how does it know yes. How does it know that the pulse rate needs to stop right when... I mean, the people in mission control don't even know for sure what's happening up there yet. Uh, yeah, so. this is... An, this, you know, occurred to me as well while I was watching it. It just makes no sense. But, you know, it's just part of the movie trying to be dramatic about about the situation i mean in a way though yeah. it's almost like they could have done something with like imagine you could have had a little bit in here where their life signs continue and then how holbrook or somebody has to figure out to like turn them off right you know oh, I mean, they yeah. could have done something with it but they didn't yeah oh yeah the other thing it reminded me of was and i think i have a note in here later do you remember that after the Challenger thing, the first thing that, that NASA or the government or whatever said is, oh, they all died instantly. And mm. later we learned, no, actually, they did not die until it hit the water. Now, they may not have been conscious, mm. but they were alive, right? But the government, as we see in here, just immediately wanted to reassure everybody it was fine. They just, you know, <laughs> they didn't experience any problems or pain or anything. <laughs> Yeah, it was quick and painless, yeah. Now, I'm thinking for the pulse rates, maybe they had three of those drinking bird toys and they were hooked <laughs> up to wires or something. So when the heat shield went down, that would have destroyed the birds or made them boil. And well, I would have liked to have seen that shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been pretty good. So when, when he sees these mysterious flat lines, Kellaway makes a call, and we see the jet that's in the air carrying the astronauts. It turns mm -hmm. around, makes a very sharp turn, <laughs> heads back to the, to the base. And Senator Lebowski, who's watching the television in his office and can see that something's going wrong, he stubs out his cigar angrily. And then Kellaway gives a press conference. Uh, and now we see that meeting room that we saw before. This is where it comes back in. The right, the cheap folding chairs and all that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they, they've got an ashtray for each of them, so that's nice. But they don't, you know, as astronauts, they don't actually smoke. So. <laughs> yeah, well, they could have taken it up sometimes. Yeah, that's true, in the last year that they've <laughs> been sitting around. Yeah. 
But the astronauts figure out that something must have gone wrong during re-entry or things would be going very differently. Well, this is one of the things with Brubaker, right? And we'll just see it over and over again. He's just, he's the smartest person in the room all the time. It's a little bit like, which I've talked about many of the movies we've watched, right? Where there's some scientist character or whatever who magically understands everything that's happening in the story, right? Mm, in this case, yeah. Brubaker magically understands everything that's happening, right? <laughs> Yeah, although usually he'll, uh, like in this case, I I didn't detail it here, but he actually spells out his argument. Like if, if, if we were doing this or this, then this would have happened. Yeah. But I, I, I think you are right. This, unlike some of those other movies, he, there is a path for him to figure this all out. Right. But, but he's pretty good at it. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) So the astronauts have figured out that something must have gone wrong. Kellaway, meanwhile, is telling the audience that the heat shield light turned red. And back in the meeting room, Brubaker tells his fellow astronauts, we are dead. Mm-hmm. Which uh, is, uh, there's a line like that in 1984, I think. We, we are the dead. Hmm. So there's an extra thigh in there. But, but yeah, it's a similar situation where you're dead and you know it. <laughs> Kellaway announces, uh, this is what we were just talking about, the craft disintegrated within 12 seconds. So it was, yeah, they didn't suffer long at all. Very reassuring, very nice. Brubaker, meanwhile, is telling his buddies they can't afford to have us around. And they try to get out of the meeting room, but of course the door has been locked. But mm-hmm. Brubaker has a lucky medallion, and he's able to use it to pry up the hinges of the door, which... Uh, uh, is something that you can do with a lot of hinges. I've seen mm. it done. So, so there's a, some real-world practicality there. <laughs> well, one of the things in the sort of self-defense world, you know, there's YouTube channels and stuff that I follow that are into this, and one of the things they'll say is that, you you know, all hinges on doors are these really cheap things that can be broken very easily if someone's trying to break into your house. But you can spend a mm. few bucks and get reinforced hinges that, you know, make your door significantly stronger. So and in this case, you know, the government being cheap, <laughs> the film being cheap, it, it makes total sense that they'd have the cheap hinges that you could just do this with. This is just no, an ad yeah. for, you know, make sure you get the good hinges, people. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll find out later that this base has been around since World War II. Right. So, uh, so yeah, they probably weren't worried too much about <laughs> reinforcing the hinges and so forth. <laughs> And that's my half of the movie. Now uh, you get to bring us to the shocking conclusion. (laughs) Okay. So now we're getting this back and forth between Callaway's uh, talking to the press and, you know, informing everyone of what happened and what the astronauts are doing as they try to escape. And, you know, one of the press people asked Callaway, what does this mean for the future of the program and he starts out very humble. I don't know, but then he kind of works his way up into this impassioned speech about how they should, you know, continue to honor what these dead astronauts were trying to do, et cetera. Yeah. We're going to give up on their dream. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And in the meantime, the crew, now that they've gotten out of the room, they get outside and there's a guy guarding the plane that they came in, you know, which is just a little, little plane. And mm-hmm. so one of them sucker punches him and uh, they get into the plane and drive off. And at the moment they're just, you know, driving on the ground. 
one of the things I appreciated here was a lot of times in these things, we see people get into these kind of vehicles and there's no realistic way they would know how to drive them. But, you know, these uh-huh. are astronauts. They actually do know how to fly a plane. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, here, here's one of the things where they tried to have Simpson do something. So they have this whole bit for the like next couple minutes where the stairs, you know, the kind of the hatch is not closed and he's trying to get it closed. And, you know, he, they keep cutting to him trying to close it. And, of course, he closed it at the last second. It has nothing to do with anything. and never impacts anything. It's just, you know, two minutes of him trying to close the thing and then it closes. Okay, yeah. right. <laughs> He's just lying lying on the floor, reaching down the stairs to try and pull that thing up before something bad happens. Right. And even <laughs> if it stayed down, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I mean, you know. It's, it's, yeah, uh, I mean, it's not like they're going to 35,000 feet yeah. or anything. So meanwhile, you know, government men start pouring out of the building and they're chasing them again. It's so interesting watching it now because all the cars are these very large, blocky 1970s cars. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's kind of funny for a very technologically futuristic show where they're going to Mars and everything, but their cars are look like this. And I'm not totally sure logistically how they do this because they're behind the plane. But they managed to park the cars in the path of the plane. It may be that the plane had to go to the end of the I runway it, and circle around or something. Yeah, it spun around and, and yeah. came back the other direction. So there might be a reason for this. Uh, so they had, so sort of like a roadblock, you know, they have the cars sitting there to stop the plane. And, you know, of course, they managed to pull it up at the last second. But one of the landing gears hits a, a windshield of the car and the landing gear gets sheared off. But they managed to fly off. And Brubaker is piloting, and he says they're headed west, and they can hit the coast and then go up north, and as soon as they find a city, they'll be safe. They'll find, you know, a TV or a radio station or something where they can be seen, and once they've been seen, they're going to be safe. And and then he wonders if people like their families will be happy to find out they're alive. Maybe it would be better if they're dead. But it doesn't matter because now an alarm goes off, and Brubaker realizes they're out of fuel. So apparently – I mean, they only had enough fuel to get, well, you know, it's a little bit questionable why they would be so low on fuel because they were going somewhere, right, in the plane. Yeah. And, and they're not they're not that far from Houston, presumably, right. so it's not like they flew cross country. And also, um, one of the other astronauts asks if he can switch to reserve fuel, and uh, he says, well, we're already on reserve fuel. So <laughs> I didn't even really, notice that, yeah. Really low on fuel, mm-hmm. uh, don't know why though. So they crash land in the desert, which again is at least believable because you know that these guys are pilots. Yeah, although I mean, uh, like you remember that plane that landed in the Hudson River that Sullenberger mm-hmm. was the pilot's name, mm-hmm. I think, and they complimented him. And I un- I understand that even even being able to land on water like that um, without landing gear is um, you know it was a pretty dicey deal from what I've heard. And then being able to land just skidding across mm. solid desert ground, uh, you know, and not have the plane mm. just tear itself well, to pieces. They don't give us this background here, but it was not uncommon that astronauts were like test pilots and stuff. So they, they typically have mm. a lot of experience with, you know, bad situations <laughs> and, and all that. So. Oh, yeah. So if well, anybody I'll, could do it, it would be this guy. Yeah, I'll, I'll give him a break in this case. Usually you're the one giving people a break, but <laughs> in this case I'll do it. <laughs> so Willis, you know, Watterson, uh, he finds a survival kit in the plane, and, and they each get a can of water and a flare, 
when there's one gun and no one else wants it, so Brubaker takes it. And, you know, they have to decide whether to go together or to split up. And this being a movie, they decide to split up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Brubaker says if they get caught, they should shoot off a flare. And one of the, I meant, you know, I mentioned earlier the moment when that guy was disappeared and, you know, all the magazines showed he'd never lived there. The flare thing was the other thing I really remembered from the movie. It was really dramatic to me as a kid, you know, as, as we see how what happens with these. Um, yeah, I, I didn't. I think just about the only thing I remembered was the lander on the sound stage. That's really <laughs> about it for me. And the name Brubaker. <laughs> and so, given the direction they came from, Brubaker says they should go west, north, and south. And so they each take a direction. And we get this kind of dramatic above them shot where they start walking off in the different sort of, you know. Directions? Turn. Yes, but the, uh, so, uh, um, the the device that tells you the direction <laughs> Compass. Compass, yeah. Uh, so there's this sort of dramatic overhead shot as they each walk off in the in the compass directions, right? Sort of 90 degrees from each other. And this is going to be significant in a, in a bit. Uh, but before they get going, Willis tries to tell a joke. So he tells half a joke. And he says, did I ever tell you the one about the guy whose job was giving enemas to elephants? And they won't let him finish the joke. And, and we never hear the end of the joke in the movie. And I didn't even bother to look it up. But I, I have to guess that it has something to do with everything coming out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's plausible. It's uh, better than I, all I could come up with was something about unpacking the pachyderm. <laughs> yeah, I think you were overthinking it. <laughs> <laughs> so they head in their separate directions. Meanwhile, Caulfield, you know, Elliot Gould, is having a technician replay the conversation between the astronauts and their wives. And again, kids, back in these days, you didn't have a phone where you could just watch something on YouTube that had happened. You know, you had to have somebody <laughs> with expensive equipment, you know, <laughs> replay it for you. Yeah, at, at this time, you wouldn't even have a lot of people with home VCRs. Oh, God, uh, no. I, I mean, was, what? That was more 80s? That was or, more you know? eight, early 80s. Yeah. I, I think early 80s was when my, my family got one. I mean, typically, probably in this time frame, maybe if you had a gazillion dollars, you could buy some complicated machine that would you know record yeah. 30 seconds if you, or something. If you were an enthusiast, I'm sure they, they had very, very expensive VCRs yeah. probably. And he confirms that Brubaker's wife paused a long time before answering. And here's the thing, because, you know, I watched this movie twice in preparation for this. So the second time through, I was really paying attention to that pause and when it occurred in the live conversation. They used, mm -hmm. I am almost certain, they used a different take here because her pause is two or three times as long this time huh. as it was in the actual thing. So. Uh, okay. I think, I, and I think that was a choice because I think they didn't want it to be too obvious the first time, right? They wanted it to be there, mm -hmm. but not yeah, really obvious. Yeah, it was there the first time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because when I watched it again, I was watching for it, and it was definitely, you, you could see something wasn't quite right with her at right. first. You know? I think they but, chose uh, to make it longer here because they wanted to make it clear, oh, yeah, it happened, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh and now we see Brubaker's wife, Kay, and she's trying to get through reading a, a bedtime story to her kids. You know, she's sitting in their bed. And this is a pretty long sequence. Uh, I don't know if it was a single shot or not. You know, the camera's getting in close to her as she's reading to them, and she's slowly getting more and more upset. And there's multiple times in the film, and there's at least one other time I'll point out, where 
they do a long sequence like this. And in some films, that would be padding, right? And being <laughs> doing Doctor Who, we're sort of reflexively used to <laughs> padding. But I don't feel that way in this movie. I feel like these things where they take a long time on something, each one has a purpose or a character moment here, right? So seeing mm-hmm. her trying to be cheerful in front of her kids, at least one of whom doesn't have any idea what's theoretically happened to her dad – and then seeing her just sort of slowly break down as she's still trying to be cheerful and read the story, I think it's pretty effective. Oh yeah, and you know what? I, I in the midst of this acting, I, I thought of the most trivial thing, which is that mm-hmm. she's reading a Doctor Seuss book. So mm-hmm. I wonder if they had to get some kind of licensing to. I knew it sounded like that. I wasn't sure it was an actual one, but they probably did. Yeah. Um, I think it's Fox and Socks, if I remember. Sounds right. Something like that. (laughs) There's a lot of cutting back and forth here. So we see in the desert, Brubaker is cutting up his pant leg to make himself a sweatband. And then when he walks off, he's staggering. He's clearly been out here for a while. But this is the first. uh, So we're going to see how each of the astronauts handles things. And Brubaker does a number of things different than the rest of them. And this is one of them. And it, it just... You know, it, it's clear that he's sort of a cut above everybody else. You know? mm-hmm. So Caulfield knocks on Kay's door and a cop answers and won't let him in until he says who he is. And it turns out he's on the visitors list and he meets Kay outside in this very nicely decorated and vegetated veranda. I mean, their house is very nice, but it's not it's not like they're gazillionaires or anything. But it's clear that probably she has a sense of taste and she probably designed it. Yeah, it's a nice suburban home. Yeah. And he starts to do the sort of default sympathy thing, and she cuts him off. You know, again, she's this intelligent adult. I like this. And she's no nonsense. Mm He's like, yeah, I understand what you're trying to do, but just talk to me about what you want to talk to me about. (laughs) (laughs) He asks her about the vacation thing in the televised conversation. And they have a lot of back and forth. She's very resistant to explaining what was going on. She wants to know why he wants to know. He says it's personal, which is a little weird, right? A reporter shows up on a major story like this Mars thing and then says it's personal, right? But yeah, yeah that mm-hmm. would be hard hard to figure out from her perspective. <laughs> yeah. He does eventually say it has to do with a friend of his, but he won't reveal more. Yeah. And so she finally tells him that Brubaker identified the wrong vacation destination for last year. He said Yosemite, but they'd actually gone to Flag Rock. And Caulfield takes this very seriously and immediately excuses himself and leaves. <laughs> and back at the crashed plane, um, two small black helicopters show up and menacingly hover over it. And I got to talk about these helicopters because they're we're going to see them a lot. And they're they're really mm-hmm. characters in the film. There's for one thing, you know. And again, in a lot of films, it would be like some huge military copter, right? No, these are two very small helicopters. Hmm. And they actually act like characters. And one of the funny things that they do directorially, and it's clearly a choice, is they actually like talk to each other, right? So when they're talking to each other, they like turn and face each other. Now, these guys are like on radios. They don't need to face each other, right? But for us, the viewer, the helicopter is the character. And the Mm -hmm. helicopters are talking to each other (laughs) and making decisions. And it's really just kind of humorous to me how they did it. And I think it works really well, and it's really subtle, and, and I really enjoyed that. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. They they did give the helicopters some personality. <laughs> and so, as we're going to see, every time the helicopters discover something, Callaway is immediately called <laughs> and informed. 
You know, he's in his office somewhere, and and so they inform him that there's a crashed empty plane, and he tells them to get more personnel and find the astronauts. Then we see Willis uh, Waterston reach a cliff face that's towering above him, and he decides he's going to climb it. Meanwhile, Caulfield has driven to Flag Rock, you know, the place they actually went on vacation. And it's an old Western town. And there's a big sign that kind of summarizes the history of the town, when it was founded, what happened, et cetera. And he's starting to read this sign. And then someone shoots at him. Yeah. And doesn't hit him. So. I know. It, it is weird that these are people who are so good that they can make an entire person disappear, et cetera, but they can't hit a reporter <laughs> while they're shooting at him. <laughs> And the whoever did the shooting apparently didn't have any more bullets. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, I mean there there wasn't anybody else around visible in the whole town. Yeah, they could have just driven down and beat him up or shot him or whatever. (laughs) But I was I was actually expecting that to come. Like I was thinking, all right, as soon as you see that bullet hit the post next to you, you start running. (laughs) (laughs) But he didn't need to. Yep. Back in the desert, we have a long shot of the evil helicopters flying around. And eventually, and it's not clear, like, they're not seeing anything. They're just sort of flying around, and they finally fly past us. And it's kind of like, why why are we seeing this? But after they fly past us, it turns out that Brubaker buried himself in this mound of dirt that was right in front of us. And uh, so we then see him get out of there. Yeah, good strategy. <laughs> they used that in Predator, too, I think. This is just another case of, like, you know, Brubaker does something very clever that nobody else thinks to do, and it helps him survive. Mm-hmm. So he gets out of this mound of dirt and walks off, and then we get to see that he's accidentally dropped the gun and left it behind, so he doesn't have protection. Mm-hmm. And now uh, Callaway puts in a visit to Kay. She's in her backyard. The kids are in the pool, and she's bantering with them. And Callaway comes over, and he kisses her on the cheek. They clearly know each other very well. And there's no implication of, like, romantic or anything. These are just people who really, you know, have known each other for a long time. And he tells her there's this upcoming memorial service, and the president is going to be there, and he begs her to show up. And, again, since he knows her, he knows she's not going to want to be there. And she says it was a horrible way for her husband to die. And he disagrees. As we were talking about, he said, oh, it, taken le- it, it would have taken less than five seconds. He never suffered. <laughs> <laughs> and he says Brubaker died for something he felt was important enough to die for. And she disagrees. She doesn't think it was important enough to die for. And she doesn't want to attend. And he gets up and starts to leave. But, you know, she changes her mind and she agrees that she'll go to the funeral. And now we see Walker in the desert, O.J. Simpson, and he's dehydrated and he falls down a hill into a dry riverbed. And once he realizes it's a riverbed, he gets excited and he maybe he can find some water and he's crawling along and digging, hoping to find water. And I actually really like this bit. So he, he looks up and he sees two black birds flying towards him. And he's, yeah, they look like buzzards at first. Yeah, and, and I think he's thinking, like, you know, because he's so focused on getting water, he's like, well, if there's birds, you know, there must be something there. He's sort of crawling toward them. And then this is a neat visual, especially since it's not CGI. You know, this is pre-CGI. It's purely practical. Is First, for a few seconds, we hear the copters, and then we see the birds transition into the copters. So this was a hallucination, mm-hmm. right? And I thought it was pretty cool. Right. Oh, yeah. 
And as the copters land, <laughs> Walker pulls out the flare, and we transition to Brubaker walking along, and he sees the flare go off in the distance. And these flares make a make a noise too, so you know when the ones <laughs> that travels nice. many miles apparently, yes, but, uh, <laughs> which is actually not unrealistic, and because this is a very oh, yeah. flat desert, so that's totally possible. Um, but again, it's, it's pretty dramatic because again, it's a very easy, cheap in the sense of you know actual cost way to have a uh, to communicate to each other that that someone is is you know no longer with us. <laughs> All right. And as is the pattern here, Callaway now gets a call about Walker having been taken care of. And he asks which direction he was headed in. And it's clear here, he totally understands how Brubaker thinks. Because as soon as he hears the direction he was in, he said, okay, only look south and west. That's where the other two are. Yeah. Yeah, so he he knows Brubaker well. But also, uh, this this helps show us that he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of resources at his disposal. And I mean, like he can't just call in a hit squad or something. <laughs> I mean, he's got two helicopters that are going through the desert and he's managing this himself. He didn't like call right. uh, Senator Lebowski and say, Hey, you got to take care of this. You know, they kind the of imply in here that there this. are more helicopters and more people, but you know, again, <laughs> budget wise, it's clear there's only really two. But this is yeah. also the point where what I kind of talked about when we first got introduced to Callaway, and he's like, oh, there's forces beyond, and I can't do anything about it. No, he's calling all the shots at this point, right? I mean, he's, <laughs> you know, and, and he clearly doesn't have a problem with doing that. Yeah. So Caulfield shows up at Kay's again, you know, now that he's visited the Western town and got shot at. And <laughs> she does an amusing bit. This, again, just calls back to those early journalism movies where – she predicts everything he's going to say, and then he repeats everything she said, you know, confirming <laughs> what it is he's going to do. She wants to know what he's not telling her, and he says, well, I drink too much, and I talk too much, and I have a vivid imagination, and I know something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. And we're going to find a little bit more about this as we go along. But he says, you know, look, I don't think your husband makes mistakes. And so he's saying, you know, I don't think he would have mistaken the wrong vacation destination and he asked what it was they did at flat rock and she doesn't remember they were only there a day because one of their kids got sick but they did take some home movies and she agrees to show them the home movies <laughs> and kids you know this was when home movies weren't done on your phone i mean literally you had to sort of be a rich person with a camera and it was like a you know a um a film with reels and all this <laughs> whatever never mind <laughs> But the home movies show that when they were there, there was a Western movie that was being made in the town. And Brubaker was fascinated by how they could do something so fake and make it look real. And he told his wife, with that kind of technology, you could fake almost anything. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, maybe slightly on the nose. <laughs> <for this movie. laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it was a heck of a long shot, you know, <laughs> that he would think of that and think his wife might somehow interpret, you know, well, I should watch the whole movies we took at the place we really <laughs> did go on vacation. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some, he's trying to tell me something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it worked out. Yeah, thanks yep, to Elliot yep. Gold. Meanwhile, Wallace, you know, Sam Waterston, is having a hard time climbing that cliff in the desert. And this is, I, I, this is another <laughs> really long sequence that I think is really effective because we have several minutes of him climbing this, and he is having a really hard time, and you really understand what a hard time he's having. But also, 
given his character the entire time he's telling himself this really long joke as he goes up the cliff (laughs) and you know it's uh, i don't think it's it's not worth retelling but anyway he reaches the punchline as he finally gets to the top and and sees what's there and guess who's waiting for him at the top (laughs) we see the two helicopters yep (laughs) and then and that's I have to say, of of bad decisions in this movie, walking through the desert, seeing a cliff, and deciding to climb it when you have one can of water on you, and they don't have any idea where you are, you know, or where it is to get the next can of water. Uh, I don't know. Climbing a cliff to me doesn't seem like the right move. <laughs> I'd say maybe try to go around it. Yeah, and again, you know, I think that comes back to Brubaker. Like, he's the only one who makes consistently good decisions, right? Um, And as we know now, because he's the only one left. (laughs) And Calloway gets the inevitable call, and he says, okay, the only direction to go now is west. That's where Brubaker will be. Mm -hmm. And Caulfield is now in his newspaper office, and he gets called to his editor, and his editor is very snide to him. This, again, is a callback to the early journalism films, right? All these, you know, back and forth one-liners. And I was like, I recognize this actor. Was he the guy in Eight is Enough? And then I looked it up. No, he was in <laughs> Charlie's Angels, right? He was the uh, was, Charlie's assistant in Charlie's Angels. I, I was thinking that might have been where he was from, but I never really watched enough Charlie's Angels to be certain of it. Yeah, he oh, was one of the only know. two actors who was in every single episode. Right? Um, yeah. yeah, and this guy's voice to me, it—I mean, it works. But if somebody did it in a movie today, you'd think they were like putting you on, like they were they were yeah. imitating that old style of uh, you know old actor. It, voice, in in the know. defense of how they did it, I mean, they keep referring to these old movies and the specifics. So clearly, he is sort of presenting that you know he's trying to be that Mm. yeah Yeah. so caulfield tells him this crazy story of someone trying to kill him and his friend disappearing and his editor doesn't buy any of this and you can't blame him because it's like well so it looks like my friend never existed and you know my car they tried to kill me but the cop said nothing was wrong with my car (laughs) and you know just like what and but on top of that and this is where we find out that Caulfield hasn't really been in a way a reliable narrator because he has a bad history as a reporter. You know, three times he thought he'd found Patty Hearst and then he thought he had the second JFK gunman. Right? So, <laughs> so it kind of makes sense that his editor and other people wouldn't, wouldn't pay attention to him. And his editor wants him to do a story on a train wreck that just occurred. Uh, but eventually he agrees to give him 24 hours to come up with something on this story that he's working on. And back at home, Caulfield draws a circle on a map, and they don't call this out specifically, but, you know, if you've been paying attention, what he's doing is he's drawing the 300-mile radius that his friend had mentioned, you know, before he Mm -hmm. disappeared, right? And then he goes to his bathroom, and he opens his medicine cabinet, and this is very cleverly staged because there's only two things in his medicine cabinet, and you just, you notice that, right? So there is mouthwash and there's toothpaste. And just the way they've lit it and everything else, it's very clear those are the only two things there. And you're not going to forget right. this. And, you know, so he uses the mouthwash and then he goes and gets some coffee. Now, I'm, I'm going to say don't 
drink mouthwash and then get coffee right after, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the wrong order. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes into his bedroom and a bunch of guys with guns break in and they've got a warrant. And surprise, they find a bottle of cocaine in his medicine cabinet. So this comes back to why it was really is, smart how they how they staged that. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I didn't take Elliot Gould to be the cocaine type. <laughs> yeah. And so they arrest him. And then his editor gets him out on bail. But he's very excited because he, first he takes his company car key from him. And then he fires him. And he's, he's really delighted that he gets to fire him. <laughs> Yeah, and that was that was a little bit of a turnabout for me because it seemed like when he finally gave him twenty four hours to find mm. something, it seems like maybe there was really a sort of grudging <laughs> friendship or respect or something. But no, this guy really is glad to see him gone. <laughs> <laughs> and so now we see Caulfield in a car being driven by his colleague uh, from the beginning of the movie. What was her name again? Or her Karen Black? Yeah, is Karen the Black. Yeah. And she points out that she's turned down all of his advances so far, but as soon as he told her he was in trouble, she was there for him. And when he had called her, he'd also asked her to find out all the military installations within 300 miles. And turns out her father was a military guy, so she called him at 3 a.m. in the morning or whatever. <laughs> said there's only one, and she describes it to him, but he says, no, that's too big, that can't be it. And they arrive at her place, <laughs> She says she'll get him some coffee and then he can jump her. So she's really giving him uh, permission here. Hmm. But at this point, he's only interested in the story and he presses her on it. Could there have been any more bases? And she says, well, there's one, but it was abandoned during World War II. It was a training base. And so, of course, he immediately realizes that's where he needs to go. <laughs> and he gets her to loan him all her cash and her car. <laughs> she said. Uh, a, a pretty good friend. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. All I'm going to say, guys, don't don't show up and ask me for those things. <laughs> <laughs> now we see Brubaker in the desert, and he hears the copters coming, and he's near a cliff, and he finds a cave in the cliff and crawls in. <laughs> I, I knew, I, or I didn't know, but I, I suspected something was coming as soon as he started crawling into the yeah. cave. It turns out he's sitting next to a very pissed off snake. <laughs> His problem is, of course, he can't leave the cave until the helicopters go by. And here's this snake that's about to bite him. So again, he's very clever. And he takes that headband we saw him create earlier and he wraps it around his hand as a kind of armor. And then he finds a rock. So he uses his hand to distract the snake. It keeps like trying to bite his hand, but because he has it wrapped up, it can't do it. And eventually he's able to smack it with the rock. And the copters pass by. And now Brubaker has a snake sushi lunch, but this isn't <laughs> another one of those very long sequences because he really doesn't want to do this, but he is at his wits end. You know, he doesn't have any water anymore. He hasn't had food for a long time. He really considers this and he cuts open the snake and it takes him a long time before he bites into it. And it's one of the things, again, you could say it's padding, but I think it just shows like the state that he's gotten to, right? I mean, it really communicates like where he's at. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think a lot of films don't do right is they don't really give you a sense of why the main character survives. And a good example for this to me is the recent Dune movie. I don't know if you saw that. I it, did. That's the one I saw at the drive-in and it looked all sepia toned. That, right. <laughs> it's visually spectacular if you don't see it in the drive-in, but anyway, there is a, <laughs> They have this really important fight in there that much of the movie leads up to, right? Um, 
and he keeps having these flash forwards or whatever to and and all this stuff about this fight and then they have the fight and then he wins the fight and in the movie there's there's no reason for him to win the fight he just wins the fight right um mm. they don't they don't give you a sense of why this happens even though it's a hugely important fight but in this movie the way Brubaker acts over and over again, you know why he survives. He's always doing something smart mm-hmm. that his colleagues did not do, and they ended up dead. <laughs> right? so. Yeah. Which is probably why he was the head of the mission, too. Yeah. <laughs> so now Caulfield finds the abandoned base, and you know he goes in and turns on all the lights, and it does seem abandoned, but he finds some suspicious-looking dirt, which is theoretically the Mars dirt. And in the yeah, dirt... Yeah, the soundstage. Yeah. And in the dirt, he finds a pendant. And when he turns it over, it's got Brubaker's name on it, engraved on it. And this was the yeah, pendant that Brubaker had used to pry open that door hinge earlier. <laughs> yeah, and the engraving says it's, uh, you know, for Brew from K or something mm. like that. It's from his wife. And that that's something that I, I kind of wondered about is if he was, if he used it to pry the hinges off the door, then they ran through the soundstage. Maybe he still had it in his hand and didn't realize it and dropped it by yeah. accident or something. But yeah, we have to assume it doesn't something seem like that. that. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the sort of thing he'd just toss in the dirt. Yeah. In the hope that some reporter would come back <laughs> and find it. Yeah, that's true. So now we see Brubaker, it's dark, he's still walking. I kind of wondered if he should have stayed in the cave until the next day, but okay. And it's very windy well, and dusty. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something, and I'm, I'm no big outdoorsman, so I could be wrong about this, but I've, I've heard some places that if you're out in the desert, the best thing you can do, you can do is try and find a shady place to sleep during the day and then do your traveling at night. So you won't be sweating and all that mm. kind of stuff. Yeah, that's true. But but under the circumstances, they've got these two helicopters looking for him. So yeah. they're going to cover some miles. So it's understandable. Yep. Yeah, that's true. The next morning, we see Caulfield driving up to a biplane sitting at a farm. <laughs> and uh, he finds the pilot and the owner of the farm. And this is Telly Savalas. <laughs> it's another pretty amazing <laughs> casting thing in here. TV's uh, Kojak. Yep. <laughs> and, he, he, you know, we have some more witty conversation, and he's pretty funny, and he has this thing about perverts that <laughs> we'll keep seeing. <laughs> um, and he says, you know, it's like, uh, well, Caulfield says, how much does do you charge to dust a field? And he says $25, which even in the 70s, I think, seems a little low. But anyway. Yeah, it was pretty good price, I think. But then he charges Caulfield $100, and Caulfield's like, well, why are you charging me 100 And he's like, well, I see how you're dressed. You're clearly not a farmer. <laughs> you, know, you must have some actual money. Um, so, you know, Caulfield pulls out, like, the $100 that his colleague slash girlfriend gave him. But then Savalas immediately ups it to 125 because he paid too quick, so clearly he's willing to pay more. So this is kind of, you know, Telly Savalas' character in this. He's He's always <laughs> on the take here. So they take off in the biplane to find Brubaker. He's still asleep, and he's about to get bitten by a scorpion. And this is really well filmed, and I'm not totally sure how they did it because 
this scorpion clearly goes onto his face. I mean, there's no CGI, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera. Now, maybe it was a scorpion that either is not poisonous or they had removed it or something. But, I mean, there mm-hmm. was no faking here. <laughs> it went onto his face. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this wakes him up. And then he realizes he's right next to an old abandoned gas station. And so he heads over and he finds this bucket of probably pretty grody water, but he doesn't care at this point. So he yeah, starts drinking I, it. <laughs> I think it might have been the the bin for the water that you use to like dip the squeegee mm-hmm. in uh, <laughs> when you wash your windshield. Yeah. And this is probably like 10 years ago or something. So who knows what's in this water <laughs> by now. Uh, but he's not being picky. Meanwhile, we see a limo picking up the Brubaker family, you know, his wife and kids, to go to the funeral. And back in the biplane, Savalas has decided that the guy they're looking for must have robbed a bank. So now he insists he gets one-third of the loot from the bank. So he keeps uh, increasing what he's going to get paid. (laughs) Meanwhile, Brubaker gets cleaned up in the water bucket, and then he breaks into the office of the gas station. Back in the plane, they spot the helicopters, and Savalas says he's seen them flying around the last couple days. So they follow them. Now, there's a weird difference between the dialogue and what we see here, because he's like, oh, we should follow them. But visually, we see right there the gas station (laughs) the helicopters are going to, so there's nowhere to follow them to because we're already here, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Inside, Brubaker breaks into the Coke machine, and at first I thought it was to get more, you know, stuff to drink, but actually... He's getting change that he can use for the payphone <laughs> to call his wife, but it's too late because they're already on their way to the funeral. I would have recommended she got an iPhone so he could have <laughs> contacted her in the in the car, but whatever. <laughs> and you know, it is amusing. Like the existence of cell phones has completely messed with screenwriters. Right? There was this period. Do you remember this? There's like five or ten years after cell phones got common and movies sort of pretended that they didn't exist so that they didn't have the problem of oh you would just call somebody at this point and now they really incorporate them into the plot etc but it's really changed things because it's very hard to be in a situation where you don't know something or you can't contact somebody right which well, used, yeah. you know, that used to be a huge part of how movies worked <laughs> yeah yeah i think i've seen a lot of movies with uh, dead cell phone batteries mm-hmm. in them yeah, that's sort of like in Star Trek when, you know, they had the problem that teleportation could solve all the problems, so they'd have to have an ion <laughs> storm so you couldn't teleport. You know? <laughs> so having failed to reach his wife, Brubaker is dejected, and he slumps down uh, sitting on a desk. And behind him through the window, we see the two black copters approaching. And I just want to call out here how difficult this kind of scene was because, again, no CGI, you know, et cetera. So you have an actor in this location that is a long, long way from these helicopters. And you have to be as a director or whatever, you know, coordinating things. So the helicopters come into shot at the right time. The actor is doing the right thing. This is extremely difficult. In fact, um, Mm -hmm. Roger Corman's autobiography, he talked about, he did this film where he was directing a bunch of planes doing dogfights and stuff. And there was like some rich guy who was financing the film and after that, the rich guy decided to make his own film that he would direct the film. And he also had, you know, planes flying around. 
but he didn't know how to do this. And, and the planes ended up crashing together and killing people, right? <laughs> because, mm. you know, this is all very complicated. Mm. So anyway, uh, Brubaker eventually hears the copters and they're approaching the building. And once again, they stop and do that talking to each other thing. Like, oh, I'll go this way. You go that way. <laughs> and meanwhile, the biplane is also approaching. You know, the pilots get out of their copters and they look in the window and, you know, Brubaker is hiding. And he grabs a crowbar, and when they come through the door, he smacks the first one, and then he jumps out the window. <laughs> and this is great. The biplane now is on the ground taxiing, like somehow they knew he would be coming <laughs> right now. <laughs> and he runs for it while Caulfield is grabbing for him, and one of the, the remaining pilot is shooting at him. Then both pilots, I guess the other one recovered, get in their copters and follow and meanwhile, Brubaker is now hanging onto the wings. So this is very Tom Cruise style. You know, he did that in one of the Mission Impossible movies. Ah. Um, and now the copters following them are shooting machine guns at them. And I was thinking, well, why didn't they shoot the machine guns at the people they were after earlier? But okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they were supposed to be held for a final debriefing. Yeah, they only got so many bullets, I guess. Um <laughs> And I will say that Josh Brolin hanging off the helicopter wing is a pretty good stunt, but there are sequences, and they have some really intense, you know, flying sequences here. It's pretty clear they replaced him with a doll, right? So it's just sitting on this side. Yeah, it could be. I, I didn't spot it, but I, I can I can believe yeah. that. If you're watching for it, you can tell. But okay. this whole scene is really well shot. It's very long, and this is where I'll get back to, you know, I mentioned mm -hmm. I thought they were cutting costs in that earlier uh car sequence where he's driving along and we're seeing it from the point of view of the car. And it mm -hmm. wouldn't surprise me at all if they put all the money they had into this chase because it's long and it's really good and it's really, you know, um, I mean, these, the plane and the copters are flying, you know, right close to the ground and going up and down over these cliffs and it's really amazing. Oh, and yeah. It, it really brings to mind um, Mission Impossible Fallout where they have these uh, amazing helicopter things in there as well and you know could have been easily been influenced by this film but they they didn't cheap out on this at all it's really good and they spent a lot of time on it clearly i also noticed they oh, did yeah. some tricks like sometimes when they would want to imply that the helicopters were close to the cliffs but they couldn't show it they would show the shadow of the helicopters on the cliffs oh yeah right so they did a lot of clever things in there to to make it oh, yeah. you know, even more suspenseful yeah, I I thought it was a thrilling little sequence, and uh, some of the photography in it. One of the you haven't been there, uh, I don't think, but uh, one of the the big local amusement park is around Cleveland is called uh, Cedar Point. It's about an hour and a half to the west, and uh, they used to have, maybe they still have, uh, a big IMAX theater there, mm. and. If you'd go in there, uh, and a lot of the time, if you were there in the summer, you'd want to because it was air-conditioned. Mm -hmm. uh, you'd go in, and they'd usually have a movie that was filmed with some gimmicks in it, you know, like the aerial photography. Basically, on those big screens, I'm sure you've probably seen plenty of movies on those big screens, but, uh, uh, you know, they, they like to throw in something that's going to make you feel like you're on a roller coaster or, you know, play with your mm -hmm. sense of vertigo mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah, that's the reason I said all that is that brought that feeling back to me just watching this on my 
computer monitor, uh, you know, the, yeah. that vertigo feeling of uh, flying down a steep cliff in a biplane and so on. It was right, uh, right. really, really uh, very well done, I thought, but terrifically enjoyable. And they have a good way to end it, right? Because at some point, um, Charlie Savalas tells Caulfield that when he tells him, he wants them to pull the lever in front of him. And then Savalas does a loop-de-loop, so if, uh, theoretically he sort of gets behind the helicopters or in front of them. Or Well, it didn't totally make sense to me why he did the loop-de-loop. But anyway, at the end of the loop-de-loop, he tells Caulfield to pull the lever. So they're in front of the helicopters, and now the crop-dusting stuff sprays out, and it blinds the copters, and they then, you know, kindly crash into the cliffs <laughs> and end the, the chase. Yeah. You'd, th- you'd think helicopter pilot training would have some provision for that. You know, like if you're if you can't see where you're going, hold still. There's got to be some some basic principle they can follow in a situation like that. Yeah, you know, you can't cover everything. <laughs> I mean, you're going to be following a biplane. I mean, that's probably not part of their plane training. <laughs> Meanwhile, we see the funeral in progress. The president is making a dramatic speech about the sacrifice of the astronauts. And then we see a car approaching in the background. I didn't go back and check. I assumed that that was the car that um, Elliot Gould got from his girlfriend slash colleague. That was the sporty red car. That was her car. Yeah. And Brubaker and Caulfield get out of the car and they start by walking and then they're kind of jogging and then they're running and as they're getting closer people in the funeral are starting to notice them and turn their heads and we then go into slow motion close-up running of them and it's the end of the movie (laughs) so i have two immediate reactions to this scene Mm -hmm. first of all we should have seen a gaggle of Secret Service agents running <laughs> yeah. towards them yeah. as, as they started running into the funeral where the president was speaking. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then second, you know, I mentioned early on that there was one directorial choice that I disagreed with, and that's in this scene when they do the slow motion. This isn't just a little bit of slow motion. This is like one frame per second <laughs> slow motion. And, uh, I, th- I thought, and plus the frame that they freeze it on at the end, uh, it looks like Brubaker's strained to squeeze out a log. I mean, it's just, uh, they could have done better on this very last scene, I think, but, uh, <laughs> that's my, my opinion. I could well, be wrong. An interesting thing here is that, Audiences responded really well at the time, and and at this portion they would actually cheer, you know. And it, and uh, Peter Hyams talked about how when he first watched it with an audience, um, it just devastated him because he realized his life was going to change. You know, it was the first time he created a film that had created this kind of reaction. Um, wow. The, the weird thing is, you know, even though people really responded to it at the time, and what I remember as a kid is it was a big deal, right? Um, if you go like look at Rotten Tomatoes, both the critic and audience reaction now is pretty tepid. Um, hmm. And even at the time, a lot of uh, critics criticized it. And, you know, I can't disagree with a lot of their criticism. I mean, we've talked a lot mm-hmm. here. I mean, they could have had more characterization. The, you know, really the film could have used another half hour or so, even though they probably couldn't have afforded it. But the thing for me in watching it is that, you know, 
they don't waste any time. They get right to it. The actors are good. These are adults. Um, I I just think it's an enjoyable film. I'd be totally happy oh, to, yeah. to watch it again. And, you know, I, I, the, the things that are weak about it don't make it a bad film, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think we're pretty much on the same page overall. I, uh, you know, there's things you can point out about it that are, uh, that's a little cheesy or that's a little silly or whatever. That doesn't quite make, you know, the great plot point there. Mm. But overall, uh, I really enjoyed it more than I expected to, uh, and uh, uh, I definitely would give it the worth watching. <laughs> yeah, me too, totally. And, you know, I think that, and again, we'll have to watch it. I, you know, probably three days of the Condor I might like a little more. What I've heard, I don't know what you think. I mean, just in my reading, the Parallax View, people have said it was a little bit boring. So, you know, people who look at Ooh. these films kind of rate like three days of the Condor first and this second and Parallax View third. But you know, oh, okay. we, we may have to make yeah. our own decision about that at some point. Yeah, it's been a while since I saw the Parallax View. I, uh, uh, I think it is kind of slow paced. But it's got some great stuff in it, and that one of the things they've got that they've got a really impressive montage in there. Mm-hmm. But I won't go. I won't say anything more about that. But it's an which is funny as we said, of, this movie would have been served by having a montage or two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah and usually I, yeah. I don't call for a montage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. usually I see a montage. I'm, All right, a montage. Right. But yeah, when you have like months and months passing and you don't communicate that in any way other than just putting a, you know, a month up on the screen, I just think that, yeah, it could have uh, better communicated the story if they'd done that and how long they'd been away from their families and, and all that. And it's, it's in there, but it's, you just don't, as a viewer, you don't really experience that time. Um, and I think they could right. have done some things to do it. Now, I mean, you know, one of the things that always interests me about montages is, you know, that's got to be the most expensive, annoying thing to do, right? Because you might mm. spend a whole day setting up to get a shot, which is now going to take up a, a half a second, a second, you know, uh. and you're doing 30, 50, 100 of those to make a montage. I mean, that's a huge amount of investment and cost, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, they're not cheap um, because all the time you're putting into doing that one second of a montage, you could have put that same time into setting up a scene, right, that takes three minutes, right? So, Oh, sure. Yeah. And one thing one thing they can do, well, there are a lot of different tr- ways that you can set up a montage, but one thing they'll do in montages is, like, use the exact same setting and outfits, but, but where before the person was, like, hitting the dummy and then waving their hand in the air like their knuckles hurt. You know, hmm. now this time they're punching with confidence. <laughs> then maybe right. later on there's a third scene where they're just beating the hell out of the <laughs> dummy. Of course, the worst example of this was all the films with Robin Williams where they'd have him just come out and improv stuff, you know, in different yeah. costumes or whatever. And, you know, <laughs> there are, I don't know, there's like 10 films that did that. And it's just like, okay, here's the point where we get Rob Williams to me. And it's just, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, let's see. Other stuff to talk about here. I mean, we said, you know, the actors did a really good job. Um, you know, they didn't waste any time. And even though we have a little bit of the romance stuff between uh, Caulfield and, and, the other, and the woman, but they don't. You know, again, they don't waste time on things like a romance that doesn't really impact the film or anything like that. They just tell the damn story, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I uh, I enjoyed it. I thought the overall, um, you know, one of the things I was kind of curious about going into this was I remembered that they were faking the Mars landing, but I had no idea like what, why they were doing it or what that was all about or who was doing it, any of that. So it was very interesting. Uh, the the villains in this turned out to be uh, quite villainous, <laughs> and uh, uh, especially uh, Hal Holbrook's character, mm-hmm. who uh, you know, you the first for me at least, the first time I saw him on screen, I was like, ah, oh, good old Hal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it turns out he's a total dick. Uh, but you just don't learn that step by step. You mm-hmm. know, it doesn't just get dropped on you all at once. So I, uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun uh, re- revisiting this one because I remembered virtually nothing about it, <laughs> the premise. Right, right. Yeah, well, obviously we really enjoyed it. We recommend uh, people check it out. Um, and now we're probably on to our next Doctor Who thing here, which we're, or something. <laughs> so, we, so these last couple of host ones, we really did just because we want to do them and we have absolutely no idea we're going to release them. So <laughs> we have no idea where this fits into anything. Um, well, with that, join us next week for what will no doubt be an exciting episode about something really good. <laughs> <laughs> 